unfinished lemonade tells me all I need to know about yesterday. You had a name for this. You had a name for this, didn't you? Well, I was going to, uh, I was just, the working title was Miller versus Berger. Um, uh, and <laughs> me challenging your nonsense, basically. We'll see how we get on. Berger, do you mind if I call you Berger? Or do you prefer? No, no, go that? ahead. What's your, what's your general at work? What, how do people refer to you? Do you get Dr. Berger uh, in, in uh, your I place? get I, increasingly, increasingly the uh, junior residents are calling me Dr. Berger. I can ask them to call me David however many times I like, but uh, right. I think I've become more grey-haired and more fierce. So now they feel they have to call me Dr. Berger. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, whatever. You can call me Berger. Lots of people call me Berger. All right, Berger. So when was the last time someone thought that you might have been too young to be their doctor? I was reflecting on this myself the other day. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that would be never. When I was a medical student, they thought I was the registrar. So uh, okay. yeah, yeah, no, that's that's never. I, I had more the other problem <laughs> where I used to be asked for the for the newspaper when I went in to see my patients and <laughs> have the news. Um, but yeah, yeah, like more that. recent times. I can imagine I, you looked, I can imagine you looked pretty baby faced, Andrew. I did. Yes. And, and uh, underdeveloped. And I, I, um, in fact, uh, these days it disappoints me a little how reassuring my, my arrival is to patients when they see me and they, yeah. they realize I'm not the new doctor uh, on, on first exactly. sight. But I'll take it as well. Really I, I've got the I've I, I've got the double whammy in Australia in that I have age, grey hairs, uh, a, a, a certain amount of confected gravitas, and a British accent, which actually confers another level of uh, status. Actually, which I didn't realise uh, when I moved here, but it, it gives that that uh, standard British accent does give a lot of reassurance to to those of us in the colonies that uh, you must know what you're talking about because you're the ones exactly who the war. yeah okay. <laughs> so um I, th there's a lot of people who know who you are and a lot of those will be listening yeah. to the podcast but who've never had a conversation uh with you and so i thought it would be useful yeah. to do so and I, I suppose you know my first question first proper question would be well what's the point of you uh, what 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 is it that you are for? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm pretty bullshy in the sense of uh, I, I, I'm a, I'm I've always been a grumpy old man, and uh, but allied with that, uh, I'm quite the idealist, and actually went into medicine for very just naively idealistic reasons which which i think i've i've kept uh the point of me is that i have a fairly wide-ranging knowledge and vision i have uh, a wide experience in medicine and i have no vested interests or, or, or at least no position to protect within the medical hierarchy i'm effectively a medical nobody so I, uh, uh, I don't have an academic position. I don't, uh, I, I'm not an, uh, a medical politician. 
uh, and yet am able by dint of uh, sometimes being outrageous and being categorical uh, to say things that many other people would like to say. And that's, that's the point of me, to be uh, an annoying thorn in the side. I was accused yesterday by a very, or not yesterday, or last week by a very senior uh, Australian doctor, very, very prominent of just being somebody who throws grenades. Well, in any war, mm -hmm. you sometimes need a grenade thrower. Yes, but you're not normally throwing them at the generals of your own army, are you? So you found yourself in a position of needing to, uh, I guess, uh, come out from a comfortable position that we're all in in the profession, which is that we're down in the trenches. We're getting on with our daily job. Um, yeah. Sometimes I feel like uh, a medical degree is a bit of a franchise that gives you a monopoly and an income and a, and a no trade question. to work. So. How uncomfortable has it been for you to be having to um, get up and make your morning coffee and go out and make life difficult for the authorities? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been very uncomfortable at times, as you well know, because you've been a, a staunch defender of mine, which I really appreciate. Um, uh, I, you're, you're dead right when you say that the profession the medical degree is essentially a franchise and it's a hell of a money-making franchise it confers status it confers wealth uh respectability it's it's you know it's the acme of achievement for many parents to see their uh, child become a well-respected wealthy doctor um but uh, i you know i like i said i'm uh, i i am a an absurd idealist. And actually, we, we were brought up in when I trained in medicine in London in the 1980s. I, I, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but we had a, a, a strong inculcation of the great, uh, of the works of the great physicians of the past. You know, I mean, I went to St. George's Hospital, I trained at St. George's Hospital, uh, which was where Jenna first conducted a smallpox inoculation on an unsuspecting nine-year-old. Um, I and, and so we were really, um, we were really brought up in that heritage, a, a tremendous, one of tremendous idealism. And I'm so old-fashioned that I forgot to forget the idealism. And so I find myself in a situation where I have very strong beliefs about the role of the profession towards the public and in public health. Uh, and those in fact do not chime with the majority direction of the profession, uh, which seeks a route of accommodation and expediency with the prevailing forces. And, you know, medicine is political, and the, there's the great quote from Verkov about you know uh, medicine being politics by another name, uh, and it really is. And everything we do is political. Every prescription we write has a political aspect to it. Every, every just simply everything we do, um, and there's there's a kind of tacit tacit 
agreement that will ignore that aspect. Um, and I can't ignore that aspect. And so I feel very strongly that the duty of the physician uh, is to uh, present to the public a vision of health and a vision of public health uh, that serves them and not, for instance, corporate masters. So, so uh, what, I mean, one of the... What, I, don't, I don't want to descend into the um, cynicism of Chekhov, who I think it was that said sure. that, um, uh, you know, he... He hates doctors more than lawyers because lawyers are thieves, but doctors are thieves who who also want to kill you. Um, yeah. And so, what proportion of the, the the jungle organism of the healthcare system uh, do you think is um, going about things in goodwill towards patients, with one eye on the on the cash register and making sure the business works, and what proportion is simply self-promoting? Do you think it is the same as or, or worse than other industries? Um, I think there's a, a very shining brand that has to be protected. Um, I, I think uh, there is a degree of hypocrisy that is much, much greater than in other industries. Um, uh, you know, I, I, doctors are not, they're not, they're not thieves and bastards uh, who are, uh, you know, just out to scam the public. A few are, but not, not the majority. But there is uh, an underlying willingness to compromise on principle for the sake of an easy life and to keep the cash rolling in and the lifestyle flowing. I think that's true. Yeah, exactly. Much Every, every aspect of society. So I suppose the, the notion that we're challenging is this reverential status uh, yes. of being given unquestioning. Yes. yes, and that's the brand. That's uh, We trade on the brand of we are these uh, selfless, noble heroes uh, with a higher calling, and uh, we trade on that brand. But, really, but think, the reality is a bit different in that the, the only selfless yes. heroes are actually you and me. And and the rest of, of them course. are, are, are <laughs> exactly so, the rest of them bunch what, of toe rag. To what degree is it simply following the leader? Uh, well, I think if you talk to the medical leaders, they say, "Well, you know this. Uh, you know, like when I talk to to medical leaders, they say, well, you know, you're right, David, of course, but our membership won't support that.' So the leaders would say that they're following the membership." Uh, and so I think you get into this vicious circle, whereas actually true leadership is to inspire people to go to a place that they didn't want know that they wanted to go to. And I think we see very little of that uh, in medicine. I yeah. think we see very little of that in general in politics in society. Uh, Absolutely. These days. Politics is the art of the achievable. I don't see any great objection to, for example, the dropping of um, masks in healthcare at the moment, which seems to me uh, to be problematic. How do you analyze that? And again, that comes back to my, this, this challenging, this notion that, that we doctors are somehow these special beings with, with higher morals, higher values. I don't think we are. I, I also don't think we have higher insight. Um, uh, so, so I think that's what, 
you know, multi, we, we're, we're as bad as multi-step reasoning and following through on the consequences of that multi-step reasoning as the rest of society. So what would you do um, to improve that? Because it seems to me we have a regulatory system, um, which is exactly, to me, analogous to the legal system in general society in that, in that we live in the shadow of it rather than ever really interacting yes. di directly with it. I think that, that comes back to the massive gap between work as imagined and work as done. So the things that we do and have to do on a daily basis to uh, deliver the most appropriate care to patients are very different to how, uh, for instance, the regulator would understand what we do. I mean, the mayhem of an emergency department at times, it, it just has to be seen to be believed. I mean, we had a riot in the waiting room a couple of weeks ago, a literal riot. Um, and in this... It was the patients on that occasion. But, uh, but you know, so in that context, delivering care uh, is extremely difficult. And those kinds of considerations, the considerations of the real world are very, very different. Um, so, yes, you're right. There's a huge amount of theatre uh, and there's a huge amount of uh, uh, people simply doing what has to be done. Uh, irrespective of what the regulations are. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 just the concrete example of this so people can understand. Um, uh, we're not allowed to send photos of patients by insecure means. So if you've got a, well, a sounds, patient with a burn... That sounds like a very good it idea. It sounds like a great thing. I'm in the committee now it and I'm voting like with a great all the thing. other committee members. Actually, yes. we're not even having a vote at the safety committee. No, Somebody's just suggested this. We're all going, yeah, that sounds about right. It's absolutely obvious that you want the most secure means of, of transport of, of confidential patient information. But it's one o'clock in the morning. You've got a patient with a severe burn. You've got a multi-trauma. You need advice. Uh, you've, got a, uh, you've got a bone sticking out of the leg. Uh, the orthopedic surgeon wants to see a picture of that leg right now. Uh, and we're not allowed to send, for instance, by a mobile phone, by a text message. Uh, uh, and there's supposedly some kind of secure mechanism by which these photos can be sent, et cetera. In practice, that does not exist in any way that I have ever come across. So every time that a doctor sends a photo of a patient in a critical situation to enhance the patient's care with the consent of the patient, they're breaking the rules. So they stick their neck on the line every day to do that. And that's the gap between work as imagined and work as done. I mean, I think the thing to say is people are, people are inherently good. And that's the, the I, I do believe that. And they inherently want to do the right thing. There is an element of idealism for anybody who goes into a, a health profession and they want to do the right thing by the patient. Um, but it's a question of surviving within the organisation. And I think it's you that's re referred to uh, the large health bureaucracies as self-healing organisms. Uh, and indeed they are uh, such that uh, if you want to get on, you have to, uh, you have to behave in a way that supports the functioning of the organism. Well, 
what 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 can a patient do? Someone who's out there who's got long COVID at the moment. What's what's their yeah. best hope in approaching this sort of Kafka esque? How do they find the people who will do the best for them in the face of a difficult system combined with a difficult patient problem? Relentless questioning and relentless advocacy. Uh, And that will piss a lot of people off. But it is the squeaky wheel that gets the noise. Uh, And if you find that you're being fobbed off, uh, ignored, you simply have to put the case more strongly. Um, I do not think that we have, for all the rhetoric, a patient-centred healthcare system. Uh, and there is no doubt that many people get marginalised. Uh, for the sake of the smooth running of the system. Uh, so for the individual patient, I'm afraid there is no alternative to being polite, but firm and going, this is not what I need. I've got more questions. Can you please answer them? Blah, blah, blah. That's, so, just, that's all you can do. Perhaps it's best that patients come in a bit a bit sceptical about their healthcare provider rather than assuming from the get-go that the first doctor they see is going to know what they're talking about and going to take their uh, problem seriously, particularly if they have a complex problem like long COVID that doesn't necessarily fit uh, yet with um, yeah. medical dogma, a contested area. Uh, uh, yeah. No, no question. And if you look at, you know, you look at the level of knowledge of many ordinary people about the nature of airborne transmission of not just COVID, but other respiratory infections now, it's way higher than uh, that in the medical profession. And there's an enormous problem, which we've seen in the pandemic with knowledge translation. Uh, in, in other words, the latest knowledge and understanding being translated into everyday medical practice. Uh, we've known that's a problem for years. Uh, But we see, you know, it can take 10, 15, 20 years, sometimes never for uh, uh, relevant information to get into medical practice. And now with the availability of information with people able to Google, able to see on Twitter what the latest studies are, uh, that uh, contrast between what is known and what is being practiced is ever more uh, uh, dramatic. And I mean, just on a personal level, my dad... Uh, just to show how difficult this is, uh, my dad, many years ago, about 20 years ago now, he was in his uh, early 80s. He uh, developed, he got flu. He got, he then got a septic arthritis of his knee. He had a staph uh, arthritis of his knee, was admitted to hospital perfectly correctly, uh, was started on high-dose IV antibiotics, flucloxacillin. Uh, He then went into renal failure. This was in the UK. Uh, He was in his early 80s. He was okay. He wasn't in the the best early 80-year-old, but he wasn't bad. Uh, And the doctor said in the hospital, they knew, they all knew me. I was a local GP. They all said, well, poor old boy, his time's up. And I said, his time isn't fucking well up because he's got interstitial nephritis from the flucloxacillin that he's just had. And he needs high dose, he needs renal biopsy and he needs high dose steroids and then it will get better. Uh, and they said, no, well, we'd have to transfer him to the regional unit. Uh, you know, it's not really appropriate, blah, blah, blah. So I insisted. So sure enough, what happens? He's got interstitial nephritis from the antibiotics. Uh, he goes on to high dose steroids. He gets better. He lives another five years. So uh, now, I had very specialist knowledge there and was able to insist and was prepared to insist. So I do think it's important 
for people to be well informed uh, and to approach with a degree of healthy and polite skepticism. Um, you know, when 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 doctors roll their eyes about the patient coming in with uh, printouts from Google and they go, oh, Dr. Google, you know, actually, that's great. You've got an engaged person. You've got somebody who understands what's going on, who wants to understand uh, about their illness and who can be a good partner in that. You know, you can be a good partner to them in that journey. I think we're much too defensive. Uh, and I think we have to be much more open to people. Part of the challenge is finding the voices that you trust. And my view has been that the, the voices to trust are the humanitarians. It's the ones who actually, you know, are trying to look after people rather than necessarily sell them something. And there's there's no shortage of doctors out there uh, trying to sell things. But how did you find who to listen to during the pandemic? I mean, you've become a, a, a famous, um, some might say infamous uh, social media scion mm. now um, what, what are we talking upwards of um uh 50,000 uh yeah hang off your tweets occasionally and uh yeah you, you have good presence and you've also become known to the to the wider stream media as a result H how did you find what people to listen to at the start of all this um i mean that's a really interesting question uh I, I don't, I, I, I've certainly developed a very good nose for bullshit over the years. Um, and there is, uh, I, I think it comes down to, as you said, those who are humanitarian, who speak plainly and who cite uh, both evidence and reason. It does seem to me that there is, I mean, there is a knowable reality. Some things are more true than other things. Um, and people who make reasoned deductions on the basis of both evidence and scientific thinking where the evidence is lacking and rationality underlying a humanitarian, uh, uh, with an underlying humanitarian voice, it seems to me those people relatively quickly uh, show themselves to be trustworthy. Um, now, by contrast, you have like the people who say, well, you know, the shadow pandemic uh, lockdowns caused all this trauma uh, and uh, all this, you know, immunity debt. And so we're seeing enormous consequences of this uh, over the years. And they will evince humanitarian uh, aspirations and humanitarian ideals. And they say, well, we're just looking out for the wider people. But actually, there's nothing underlying in terms of evidence, in terms of rationale, uh, so those voices are false. Those who say, you know, we're concerned about studies that show a 36 times incidence in pulmonary embolus in the two weeks after contracting COVID, or we're looking at an excess death rate of 13 uh, percent. Those uh, seem to me much more trustworthy. So I think it is it is a process. Um, 
but you're right. I mean, it, it, we have been brought up to believe that people who are professors and have lots of letters after their name are the people to trust. And of course, the people who are professors with lots of letters after their name also push that uh, notion. And we would like to think that everybody who is in the academic sphere, in the medical sphere, in the scientific sphere is good and has noble aspirations and noble ideals uh, and a conscience as pure as driven snow. Uh, but the reality, as we've discussed before, is that we are all human. And I do not automatically trust somebody with lots of qualifications because we all have agendas. I think that's, a, that's easier for those of us who have dealt firstly in the clinical area because we know that, I'm sorry to say this, the professor isn't necessarily the best surgeon. Um, the one who's I was going to say that I, as there was as, a pancreatic surgeon when I when I there was a professor of biliary surgery when I trained and like everybody in the hospital went just don't go and see him just don't send any of your relatives to him and we all well, know that we all know those people it doesn't mean they're not the best surgeon because they are the professor but the but the converse is also true it's yes it's, it would be more often than not that the person who hasn't devoted a large chunk of their time to academia but who has in fact spent most of their time operating whilst being aware of the literature, mm. living in the shadow of what's happening academically. That's most likely the yeah. person you want. I mean, I think it is, it's really hard for the general public uh, to detect who to listen to and who not to. Um, but as I say, you know, it, there is some degree to which you have to go with your gut. You know, is this person... Does this person actually sound like a humanitarian? Are they making sense? Uh, and is there some kind of scientific basis to, uh, to what they're saying? Um, I think the reality is that the regulatory uh, system cannot, uh, cannot guarantee that uh, the people who uh, are appearing as your talking heads on TV, et cetera, are actually telling you the best information and that's that's the reality you know we have bullshit yeah. in medicine and and we're just like any other we're like any other profession any other branch of humanity they're a bullshit artists and they're really good at it and you just have to try and sniff them out well one way unfortunately they're very beloved of they're very beloved of executive producers on some tv shows but well, that's that's uh, that's true, but the, you, one one way of sniffing them out is to to see how many times they've been wrong, or how many times yes. they've asserted the wrong narrative, yes. even if they didn't yes. didn't know that it was wrong. And and I think so. You want a doctor who's humanitarian. You want someone who's cautious. So in the face of an emerging yep. risk, not someone who's saying, "Don't worry about all this; it'll be fine. It's all a bit of a fuss." When then we get twenty percent excess mortality, and then they go and try and deny that at the same yes. time but uh you know that yeah. is a that is an blame it, on blame it on lockdowns in south australia which had like three three days of lockdowns or something well the wa was less <laughs> even you know we, yeah we, exactly we had uh, exactly and tasmania we had travel restrictions we could only go as far as kananara and Esperance. so there was there was a lot of people <laughs> yeah, saw exactly parts of western australia they'd never seen before but certainly there was no uh th yeah. th there was no degree of lockdown and th that's a whole nother question that we'll approach another time but, I, but yeah. I, I did want to ask you um, uh, where you are at the moment 
and because uh, you you have a peripatetic um, kind of uh, I, I sometimes yeah. think of you as Phileas Fogg from um, round, <laughs> round the world in eighty days. Just uh, yeah, you, you seem to be round the world. So where are you at the moment? So at the moment I'm on the uh, north New South Wales coast, uh, on the mid north coast, the sort of hippie near the hippie town of uh, Bellingen which was where we first moved when we came to Australia. But we pretty soon decided that we didn't want to, that we wanted to do, since my wife's also a doctor, GP like me, uh, that we wanted to do more interesting medicine than being in a suburban general practice. So we, since we arrived actually in Australia, ten, just over 10 years ago, we've been working at the hospital in Broome, uh, working in the emergency department, on the ward and in the high dependency unit. No, that's, so that's not just been... down the road from where you are at the moment, though. No, no, no. It's a long, it's, it's about as far as you can get on the other side of Australia. So uh, so we've actually just driven back uh, in, a, in a land cruiser. We came back. It took us 10 days of hard driving. We came back mainly on dirt roads from, uh, uh, from Broome, which was good, you took good a short fun. Cut. We spent about half a year. We took a shortcut across the middle, which is a bit of a long, long cut. We didn't see another car for three days. So this is an amazing country here. So, uh, uh, yeah, we spent about half the year up there working in the emergency department, which is uh, about as challenging in so many different ways uh, as I imagine medicine can be anywhere. So really interesting work, uh, very heartbreaking sometimes, uh, and really rubs you up against the uh, question of, uh, of of treating downstream results as opposed to upstream causes. We're totally downstream, and uh, medicine needs to be upstream, or at least a lot of it needs to be upstream. So you're suggesting that prevention is better than cure? <gasps> Horrors. <laughs> yeah. The best quote. The best quote is which I have, which I've just been repeating all the time from Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He probably got it from somebody else. So he said there comes a point where you have to stop fishing bodies out of the river down at the river mouth and go upstream to see who's kicking them in, you know, and, and we're just fishing the bodies out of the bottom of the river. Upstream prevention, it's a bit dull because nobody gets ill and then people go, well, nobody's ill, so why do we need to do all this stuff? Uh, but that's really where the big gains are to be made. It's not in, you know, trying to get the HbA1c down by another 0.5% by adding in another diabetic drug into somebody who's got a body mass index of 50, you know. That's, yeah. That has a, a degree of futility about it. That's... Yes. So um, do you find that uh, you are able to sustain this sort of uh, by... The, this lifestyle of spending six months immersed into that emergency department because you can then uh, spend a bit of time outside of that. And do you think it balances yeah. with the advocacy work that you do trying to improve the upstream or, or, or are they yes. both incredibly taxing? Uh, that, well, I, I, I couldn't just do the, that work probably 75-80% of our patients are uh, Indigenous Aboriginal Australians. Uh, and seeing, dealing with that on a day-to-day -day basis relentlessly uh, is, uh, uh, results in a very high degree of moral injury 
to healthcare workers. It's very hard to do that work and not get burnt out. Uh, does, it, so, does, it make you, uh, does it make you angry? It, it really makes me angry about, you know, the false promise of medicine. Medicine is so, the medicine that we have today is so powerful and so incredible, and we are seduced by it. I mean, as humans, as hunter-gatherers, we are tool makers. You know, the history of our species, the history of, of, of the genus Homo since a million years is of refined tool making. The history of our species as Homo sapiens over the last 200,000 years is refined tool making and, and, and increased communication and the ability to cooperate to make amazing tools. And our drugs are the most amazing tools and we are so seduced by them. But in fact, you know, we, we, we do so much that is self-defeating. We create the illness that we then go on to treat in this kind of virtuous loop or non-virtuous loop. Um, uh, and that's, that's what makes me angry is the futility of what we find ourselves forced to do. People don't mind working very hard, but they, they do not like doing work that is futile. No, exactly, exactly. And you just look at it, you go, I can put a sticking plaster on this today, but the damage was done so long ago. Um, but, so, but you have uh, to do it. And, right? yes. Someone has to be there for you that. Of course you do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And that's the, that's the beauty of medicine, you know, that you're there, you've got the patient in front of you, you have this very clear moral duty to do your absolute best to help that person in the best way possible for them, taking into account everything, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so that's, a, that's easy. So actually standing there on the day, you know, you don't give somebody a lecture on the, uh, you know, the importance of avoiding ultra processed food and uh, not drinking four liters of coke a day, et cetera. You just got to treat their MI or whatever. So that's easy. Um, but it, it does, there is an accumulated moral injury from that over time. And I don't think I could do that uh, or, or every, every week of the year without getting extremely burnt out. So uh, advocating, so just on, for my personal well-being, advocating for humanitarian uh, uh, aspects is very important. I spent a long time advocating for uh, better treatment of refugees uh, coming to Australia. Um, and uh, as you know, more recent and against uh, healthcare corruption, particularly in the World Medical Association. Um, and now, as you know, I've been a, a vocal proponent of safety in the pandemic for all of us, but most especially those who are most vulnerable, who have no, uh, uh, who, who are so much more at risk, and who I think have been grotesquely traduced uh during the during the pandemic and and are now being exposed to uh, unacceptable risks in our healthcare system and that that's what makes me most upset most angry uh is that we are no longer uh even paying lip service to first do no harm we don't care um it seems you have these two polar sort of um activities that you throw yourself into and one of them in a way cures you of the other and yeah, the other it does it, it, so you spend your time in the emergency I, department putting the band-aids on because you know what to do for that person right in front of you and there is a real satisfaction 
in the immediacy mm. of dealing with your father's interstitial nephritis and fixing a problem that is fixable in medicine like in politics like in law like in everything we want yeah. a problem that's fixable so that we can have yes. a victory exactly there is a, yeah i mean look it's fun you know it's it's a really interesting i mean i i partly i went into medicine because i absolutely love medicine i mean it's absolutely fascinating uh and the power the sheer power of what we can do is incredible I do think, uh, I mean, here comes a bit where I, I kind of lament about the young doctors of today, but the young doctors of today, I mean, I'm not even that old, but they don't understand how things have changed even in 30, 35 years. HIV has become a chronic manageable condition. I mean, these are incredible things. And so when you do something, when you, you make a great diagnosis, you manage to cure somebody, you put in a chest drain, you know, to relieve a pneumothorax, whatever. These are all incredible things to be able to do. And there are some sometimes in the emergency department where we're going, yeah, we are the champions. We figured it out. Yeah. And so that's that's really, you know, that's really fun. I mean, it's, uh, you, you, of course, we need that medicine. The fact is, a lot of it, we shouldn't have to be doing. I mean, we'll always have to do some of it, but so much of it is like, we don't have to be doing this. So you're like a firefighter who gets a real satisfaction out of putting out a fire, but every now and then you kind of want, want to make a fuss about yeah. why don't we have better fire safety? Why are we getting so many damn exactly. fires? Because who's, who's make, and the fact that there are some people making money out of this and there are other people wandering around going, exactly. saying, don't worry about all the fires. Don't listen to Berger. You know, he's, he's trying to impinge on your freedom by saying that you need to have yeah. a fire extinguisher. Exactly. And yeah, so, it's, it's, uh, exactly. It's ridiculous to advocate for zero fires. What a ridiculous idea. You know, it's bizarre, but it's so weird, isn't it? The way, you know, we can advocate, you know, that we have this manifest, these manifest targets for like zero road deaths, which is totally unrealistic. I mean, there'll never be zero road deaths, but, but the government spent billions trying to get to it. Um, presumably partly because that, you know, there's a lot of money in it for motor manufacturers to build safer and safer cars. So there's this kind of coincidence of, uh, of, of aspirations. But in other things, it, it, you know, there really isn't any, um, there really isn't any interest. So like the notion that we should have zero hospital acquired uh, respiratory infections, for instance, that we should make our hospitals safe. People go, well, that's just ridiculous. You know, we can't. We can't even, uh, what, what an absurd aspiration. And yet the history of humanity is that we are cunning, clever, fiendish, and we accomplish everything. We do the most amazing things. And yet the simplest things, if they're not politically expedient, we are indoctrinated to believe that they are impossible. And that's where I'm most upset about what I see as the failure of leadership in the medical profession, that the medical profession should not be doing the bidding of the pharmaceutical companies or a government whose only short-term, our main short-term aim is to get people back into uh, city center uh, business properties, CBD business properties, uh, and to get the coffee shops running again uh, at, at full capacity. That's what really annoys me. When our privilege gets revealed to us, um, we then have these constant moral judgments to make about how much do we go down into the abyss and look into the abyss trying to help because you can give away all your wealth tomorrow walking through the streets of Africa. Yes. 
uh, and make no difference at all in a, on, a, on a substantial sense, whatever. How much yeah. life are you entitled to reserve to yourself to enjoy? Do you think it's possible to, to have a balance where you're not beating yourself up too much? You're not getting in too much trouble. You're still doing your job, but you're actually making some sort of progress? Or is this as yeah. uh, people like Tolkien might suggest a long defeat where we're just seeing sort of... Uh, some some nice pushback occasionally, but in the end, things still get tending towards entropy. Yeah, I mean, I think that things obviously, you know, well, the nature of entropy is that everything tends tends towards the less ordered state, uh, and that is the nature of the universe. Um, but uh, and 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 life, and particularly humanity, we are the entropy reversing process, uh, particularly. You know, we 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 uh, we reverse entropy on this local scale. We per capita command more and more energy. We control more and more of the solar energy that's reaching the planet. I do think that one can get terribly bound up with this kind of obsession with purity of motive. You know, how pure am I? Am I doing enough? Should I be doing more, etc.? And I used to get very tortured by that. Uh, you know, this kind of absolutist. Um, uh, uh, view of things and it, I think it's a very western way of looking at things I mean I, I you know I think you just do what you can you just try not to be a shit in your personal life uh, and you try to work the best you can for others given the limitations that you have and none of us are perfect and I don't yeah personally I don't feel the need to kind of strive for protect perfection which is a good thing because I'm so far off it um, yeah. But I think I think I think just understanding that that the quest for purity of motive is a quest, uh, but that you don't necessarily have to follow it. You can just try and do the best you can, and it's better than not doing the best you can. And it's and okay to take imperfect. a holiday from it and enjoy yourself. Yeah. Exactly, because you're only human, and you, there's only so much you can do. And beating yourself up is a, it's another kind of vanity in a way. You know, it's like, you know, I should be so perfect. I could be doing this. It's just like, come on, just listen up yeah, a bit. I think that's been a good orientation yeah. uh, to my provocative uh, question as to what's the point of you. Um, I think... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to interview you and ask you what's the point of you. No, no, that's not the premise. Because that's, that's a very interesting question as well. It's not the, it's not the premise. I'm not ready for that question. <laughs> Maybe when I get to your, your esteemed seniority, then I'll, then I'll be oh, ready. Of course. Uh, if we do yeah. anything by sharing these chats, I want people to not feel alone. Because there are people who don't have yeah. our privilege of having a pretty, still a pretty reasonable immune system, being able to get out. Yeah. Uh, and people who are finding it difficult to access their healthcare at the moment. There are people who are yeah. split up in their families at the moment um, because there's no understanding about what it is they're going through. So if in having these chats, people can uh, un understand that there are those who have um, mm. not just sympathy for them, but also strategy, also connection, also potentially yeah. some influence uh, on, on the way people think about things, if not explicitly, then maybe... Um, we, we influence the way that people, um, thought leaders or, or decision makers do think, even though they might never want to admit it. And I suspect we can repeat the same conversation next time and just say it in a slightly different way. Perfect. A half-finished lemonade to 
tells me all I need to know about yesterday I'm back here again, I told myself I'd stay a while away Oh 